in 2016, in Budapest, of all places, a man walked into a Ferrari dealership, plumped down $1.5 million for his dream supercar, 950 horsepower, and a little speedy number just raring to go. Now, in an article about supercars, an expert said that there are certain cars, Dodge Vipers, Porsche Carrera GTs, that have a reputation because, he says, they are not for amateurs. He says they take a certain amount of skill to drive well. The more capable the weapon, the more likely somebody is to hurt themselves or potentially misuse it. Speaking specifically of the Porsche Carrera GT, he said that in their limited span of production, 1,270 were made. In their first two years of rolling off the assembly line, 200 of them were totaled by the drivers. The more powerful the weapon, the greater the skill needed to handle them. Oh, by the way, that guy who plunked down 1.5 million for his dream Ferrari, he pulled out of the dealership, made his way through the first of the steps in the, of the streets, and then as the traffic opened up a little bit, he decided to see what would happen if you stomped on the gas. A little bit too much torque led to a little bit of fishtailing, led to the car lurching into a number of parked cars. 1.5 million in the wrong hands, 950 horsepower, showing what a powerful weapon in the hands of the unskilled can do. Why do I tell that story? Well, maybe it tickled a little absurd part in me, but our reading today brings us to an incredibly powerful weapon, God's Word, and it speaks of a truly skilled one who wields it. And so I wanted to dive into those things as we turn our attention back to these verses in Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 12 through 16. First, what is this weapon? It's the Word of God. Let there be no doubt about that. And there are a few places in Scripture where we get this analogy that the Word of God is like a sword. And perhaps the one that you are most familiar with is from Ephesians chapter 6, where we are told to put on the full armor of God. Many of you may remember that from your days in vacation, Bible school, or um, children's chapel. But let me read to you those verses in Ephesians chapter 6 so that you hear what God's saying to us. The Apostle Paul, as author, writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes to your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation 
and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What Paul is saying there, what our author of Hebrews is talking about, is the very simple truth that the Word of God comes from God. That's why it has its power. Paul would write later when he was writing to his protege, Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, a cynic might say, Aaron, just because Paul writes that towards the conclusion of the New Testament writings, that all scripture is God-breathed, isn't that sort of circular reasoning? He's trying to reinforce a thought by writing it into scripture and making it so. I would get that objection. And so we would then say, well, let's go to the first five books of Scripture, the Pentateuch, if you will. Let's see what Moses had to say. And, and if you were to go there and read, and I know those of you that are on an annual reading program starting out in Genesis, you've been going through these words. And if you've been doing that, perhaps you were amazed at how many times you come across the phrase, and God said, and the Lord said, What you see quickly is what Moses is writing down is not just whatever he thinks is good to write. He is taking dictation from God and writing it into his word. Fast forward to the Gospels where we see Jesus' teaching recounted again and again. And what we see when we do, when we look there, is we see that Jesus holds the Old Testament in very high regard. He esteems it as the word of God. And it's fascinating when you get Jesus teaching, if he is affirming what is written in scripture, he says it is written. When he is disagreeing with some of the teachings, some of the rabbinical teachings, he says, you have heard. He distinguishes between what is the written given word of God and the oral erroneous teachings. Jesus affirming the divine authorship of Scripture as well. So we have all of this building up to this notion that God has given us a gift. God wants us to know who he is and who we are so that we can understand how to interact with him. Part of our interacting with him is that we have some concept of his holiness. Now, I have oftentimes encouraged people when they are looking at the Ten Commandments to consider them as a dual-purpose mirror. First, on this mirror is God's standard of perfect behavior, how he wants us to be able to behave, his understanding of perfect behavior from those he created. But at the same time as we have that image of perfection, that mirror is reflecting back to us our imperfection. All of those places where we fall short. A reminder constantly as we look at God's perfect will that we are not a perfect people. We are a sinful, rebellious lot. And sometimes looking in that mirror smacks us off the side of the head. Let's just know who we truly are. So, the author of Hebrews says more about 
God's word. In fact, he makes this rather fascinating distinction. He says that it is living and active. Now, I don't know about you, but when I pick up a book and I see ink on a page, I don't tend to think of it as alive. But the very notion that he is suggesting that we should look at the Bible as living and active perhaps tells us that we are wrong to start off thinking of it as a book. My case in making this point is that you can read a verse 10 times over a couple of years. And as you read it, your eyes see the words, your brain processes it, and you say, yep, just read that verse. But the next time you read it, as you are reading through it, all of a sudden there's something else that takes place. Your eyes see it and your brain starts to process it, but it jumps down into your heart. It convicts you. It either reminds you of something terribly wrong or it points you towards something beautiful. Instead of being words on a page, it stirs your heart. Now, the words are exactly the same words that they were every other time that you read it. The order of the words is exactly the same as every other time that you read it. The context has not changed as well. But what has changed? Your relationship to those very words has brought them alive in you in a way that they were not previously. God's word is alive, touching you where you are. So that some places, it's just something being processed in your brain, but in other places, it convicts your heart in a way that is not otherwise possible. And that brings me to my next part about it. As you read through Hebrews chapter 4, the thing that sticks out, I think, in most people's minds is this notion of a two-edged sword, one that can pierce through soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It is indeed something very, very sharp and specific. And he even goes to the point of saying, discerning the intentions of your heart. Now, this should creep us all out a little bit because God does know our hearts. God can read our minds. If you were revisiting the story in, Matthew, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, where he talks about these four friends who have this one buddy who's paralyzed and needs healing, and they carry him on a mat to go see Jesus, but they can't get into the house because it's packed. So they go up to the roof. They disassemble the roof, and they lower this guy down so that he can be healed by Jesus. Jesus says to the man on the mat, impressed with the lengths with which his friends have gone to bring him healing, your sins have been forgiven. But then Mark's gospel tells us that there were a couple of teachers of the law in the audience, and they started thinking, this man's a blasphemer. Only God can forgive sins. But as Mark's gospel tells us, Jesus then looks directly at these men, discerning their hearts, knowing what they were thinking, and said, why do you say that? What is easier for a man to say? Your sins are forgiven? 
or get up, take your mat, and walk. But to show you who I am, I say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. And other than the blasphemer part, which they got wrong, their part about God forgiving sins, they got right. And Jesus forgave the man and got him to get up and walk, healed of that which afflicted him internally and externally. Jesus knew their minds, and he knows ours too. That has implications. He knows that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He knows that as we read through his scripture, as we read through his standard of holiness, that it should become apparent that he is holy and we are not. And those shortcomings, as we read through scripture, should be so glaringly obvious that we all see them and are aware of them. It, some of you may recall there's a, a billboard that I've seen a few times heading down into Florida. And it's brilliant. It says, what part of thou shalt not, don't you understand? God's word is clear. If you want the theological $25 phrase for it, it is the perspicacity of scripture, which is a really tough way of simply saying the clarity of scripture. It reveals itself. It's plain. We know almost every single instance in Scripture what it truly means. God made it that way so that we would understand it, so that we would have no excuse. But of course, that's not how the heart of man works, is it? Because there's a way that seems right to man, and in the end, it leads to death. So our author wants us to know one thing, one more thing about God's word. And that is because he took the effort to give us a book to proclaim his word through divinely inspired authors to a church that would then understand the value and preserve it and then make sure that it was faithfully copied into a multitude of languages so that we have it today. Because God took all of those steps he expects us to know what it says. And when we stand before him, we will not be able to plead ignorance. Now, I realize that so many of you are busy or have had incredibly busy lives where you couldn't find an extra second in the day, it seemed, because life just ran you ragged. And so the idea of taking time out from your schedule to explore God's word perhaps seemed foreign to you. But the reality is God wants his word burned into our hearts and he wants us to know what his word says. I'm the sort of guy where, and you'll get some devices these days where you pull them out of the box and on the instructions, there's all of these instructions but on the back page, there's the quick start option where it just tells you how to turn things on. I like that. And that's what I do. I turn it to that page and I get the thing on. And I say, I'll figure out the rest. Well, that's the way we've been living. And we need to figure out the rest. 
And God gave us a way to figure out the rest because you are the most brilliant supercomputer ever created. And I don't know if you appreciate that. You are brilliantly, wonderfully, intricately crafted. And God gave you a manual on how you work best. And some of us who have been in church for a while know that when we die and come before the Lord, what we really want to hear God say is, well done, good and faithful servant. But if we don't know how we were designed to operate, how can we faithfully execute our own purpose? How can we live up to the standard of being a good and faithful servant if we're not being good stewards with our own abilities? What if we stand before God and find out that we were only operating on 3% of our ability because we never learned about the other 97%? God means for us to know his word. God went through great lengths for us to have his word. And therefore, ignorance of God's word is no excuse. I'm not saying God's going to say, you don't get to come in because you don't know my word as I gave it to you. And I'm sure we're all going to be rejoicing just because we get in. But there are many who have made that joke. When I get into heaven, it's going to be with singe marks on my backside. (laughs) There may be a few more of us getting in that way than we'd like to think. So understanding that, I want to bring you to the next section of this verse is from Hebrews. Because I've now explained to you the power of this sword, the word of God. It's now important to understand a little bit more about the one who wields that power. Jesus, the great high priest, the son of God, the son of man. What do we know about this wielder of the sword? Well, I love the way that John puts it in the introduction to his gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has ever been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. So understand this. Jesus, the one who wields this sword, is omniscient. He's omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is your creator and author of all that is. Now, that has some significant implications for you and for me. What it means is that everything your eyes have ever seen, he's seen through you. It means that everything that your ears have ever heard, he's heard with you. Every word that has ever come out of your mouth, he was there as you spoke it. Everything that you have ever done, he was there when you did it. And everything that you ever didn't do that you should have done, He was there for that as well. That should terrify all of us. The slightest moment of serious introspection on that should let us know 
that we would all be in really big trouble. Because the one who wields the sword knows all that we have done to deserve its full and complete wrath. From God, no secrets are hid. And even if we feel like we've been in our best behavior for the last 10 years, he knows every time that we slip during that time and those years before we think we've been on our best behavior, he knows all that as well. Thank God Jesus is more than that. Because it was for us and for our salvation that Jesus came down from heaven. And that's another thing that the author of Hebrews wants us to know. That the one who wields this sword is not one who's far apart from all of us, never having experienced this fallen material world. No, Jesus became incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He took his first breaths out of the womb. He knows what it's like to learn to walk, to hunger, to thirst. He knows what it's like to experience the love of a mother and the loss of an earthly father. He knows what it's like to grow up in an area where there are kids who tease and tear down, where there are people who have so much more than you, whether it be material wealth or power. He knows those things. But he knows so much more than that as well. Because he knows what it's life, what it's like to experience joy and sadness. He knows what it's like to experience love and betrayal. He knows what it's like to be tempted. The one who wields the sword is one who has been here walked amongst us, experienced all of the temptations that we face, and knows how hard it can be to make the right choice. As one who is going to hand out justice, what you need to understand is that when he extends mercy, he does so as one who did not receive mercy. When he extends justice, he does so as one who was the recipient of injustice. When he extends grace, it is as one who knows what it is like to not receive grace. And when he extends love, he does so as the one who knows that the greatest target of his love is his greatest creation, us. Now, we need to understand one other thing about that, though. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. There's that great phrase in there that we can so easily misconstrue, that whosoever believes in him shall have eternal life. What that means is believe in him and you have eternal life. But it also means that there will be those who do not. And for those that don't, you get death. You don't get eternal life. That is the unfortunate end result of that offer. Accept it, you get one thing. Reject it, you get another. And God's perfect love 
is love that must contain righteousness and justice. And we need to be mindful of that. The one who wields the sword, while being the one who saves, will also be the one who destroys. One of those other places in Scripture where you find the analogy of the word of God and the sword is Revelation chapter 19. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine living, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe, on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So when you put these two things together, what does it mean? To have the word of God and the one who wields it being Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest. Well, it means that when Jesus says that he is the way, he's the only way. When Jesus says he is the truth, he's the only truth. When Jesus says he is the life, He is the only life. When Jesus says no one comes to the Father except through him, it means he's standing at the gate with a sword, determining who comes in and who stays out. The author of Hebrews leaves us with this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. And so we, as the people of Christ, come before him, acknowledging the depths of our sin, repenting of it, and embracing this glorious offer that Jesus Christ has offered of us. Salvation through his blood alone, through the great high priest, Christ our Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.